Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Even more misery. Hello and welcome to episode 20 of this season's Real Football Cast. As always, I'm your host Dan Tracy and in the next 60 minutes we'll be dissecting all the hot topics in football. As per usual, we'll be discussing what's been going on in the Premier League over the past few days. While in addition to that, there are also some off-pitch activities that have caught our eye and they'll be getting our attention in the next hour. It's been another incredible week of football and this week we've once again got a full house. That means leading the line around the captain's armband is Carl. So, Carl, how have you been since we last spoke? Yeah, really good, thanks, Dan. I've had quite a bit of football to go through, haven't we? So, looking forward to uh, getting on and chatting all things football with you guys today. Fantastic. The band is back together. There's all three of you, which also means you're joined by Fulham fan Matthew. Matthew, I hope all is well. And how have you been since we spoke a week ago? Uh, not been too good, I'm afraid, Daniel. Ah. The um, the the Fulham results have started to take their toll on me once again as relegation looms ever and ever nearer. Okay, we'll get onto that topic in the show, but I'm sorry to hear you're not feeling too well in terms of football. I think Max might be better though, because we had a Palace win at the weekend. Yeah, yeah, for the first time in <laughs> in what feels about 84 years, like <laughs> the <in> Titanic. <laughs> yeah, so I'm 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 much happier now with the football. Yeah. Fantastic. We'll get to that win also. But before we do, I'll do the social media bits first, as we'll be talking into the abyss once more. So, first, if you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter, at Dan Tracy, 1983. Also, the podcast has its own account, which is at Real Football Pod. And if you want to become a shareholder, all you need to do is follow and join our very elite members club. You can find me via iTunes by searching for Real Football Cast. If you use that platform, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And if you like us, leave a review so we move up the league table. And if you're not a fan of all things Apple, you can find me on SoundCloud, Spotify and Audio Boom. While also the podcast can announce a new content partner as I've teamed up with Goldground.com and I'll be lending my thoughts to their excellent website each week. So once you've listened to the show, make sure you check out them as well. Right, let's go live. And where should we go first? Let's go, I reckon, Carl, unfortunately, Tottenham and their implosion over the past week or so. The wheels have certainly come off, but is the season still salvageable? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the main thing is, isn't it, that, you know, given the way that the league is panning out and the fact that teams are very much inconsistent, apart from, say, maybe Man City at the moment, um, you're still in a shout. Top four is still there. I think we have to sit there and say that the title isn't going to happen because I don't think we can put the kind of consistent run we probably need to to really put a title push in this season. But... Top four is still there. Um, and I'd imagine that, you know, at the start of the season, one of the real aims was just to make sure we were back in the top four come the end of the season. And obviously, as we know, we're still in all the cup competitions and we've got the final of the Carabao Cup to come in a few weeks' time. So 
I would sit there and say that while things obviously are not looking great at the moment and, you know, the worry there is that the Jose implosion is coming quicker than it has at most of his other clubs normally, um, while you're still in those cup competitions and you're in a final of one, then the season could still become a success at the end of it. You know, if we were to pick up the League Cup and who knows, say, the Europa League or the FA Cup, and there was, you know, two two trophies. And even if you then, say, finish fifth, I think most people would still say, well, you know, Spurs have now won a couple of trophies. You finish fifth. You go again in the summer transfer window. Then who knows what can go on from there. So I think the season is still savable and still could be a good season. My worry now, though, like I say, is just with the kind of news that's coming out and player unrest and that, the football that we're playing and and let's face it the performance the other night against Brighton was probably the more worrying performance out of the two um because you know Jose said in his you know after game comments that he felt we deserve something well I don't know what game he was watching because he must have had football manager on his phone or something or watching another game somewhere because we certainly didn't deserve anything out of that game at all and that was a woeful performance and that that's the worry if that's the way things are going to go right now and you know players didn't look like they were running the way they were earlier in the season you do start to wonder whether the wheels are falling off uh, and we could see Jose's demise quicker than we thought so Matthew, I know you're keen to see Gareth Bale other ready for the European Championships and I know you've also said before that what he really does at Tottenham kind of now is of no real concern. But are you a bit concerned that we're at February and he's not really looking like he's going to have a good summer either? Um, I will admit there is a slight bit, yes. bit of concern there because, uh, you know, as I have said, I score three own goals for all, for all I care every single game so long as he's getting minutes under his belt. When he turns up for a team that actually, you know, cares about him, then everything will will be well and good. But I will admit that there has been some sort of concern creeping in that, and it was addressed by I can't remember. I think it may have been Graham Souness uh, before the Brighton game. But now that Harry Kane is out, this should be the time that he's actually getting some minutes, and he did against Brighton. It's just whether or not he actually manages to get that, you know, keep it going because he's been used sporadically throughout the season. So I think once he gets a run of games under his belt, everything will be fine. But Jose Mourinho knows that with his injury history, his vast injury history, you do have to be careful with it. So I can kind of see both sides. You do want to see Bale playing, but at the same time, you everyone is aware of the risk associated with him. I think once they get that balance right, everything will kick on for him. But it's going to take a while before we get there. Okay, then Max, on the evidence of what you've seen this season, do you think Gareth Bale is done as a top-tier player in terms of Europe's big five leagues? And now, is it nothing more than semi-retirement to follow in a money-grab league such as the MLS, J-League or China? Um, I think it might be a little bit early to kind of be talking about that because ultimately he hasn't really had, <clears throat> excuse me, he hasn't really had much opportunity at Tottenham. And I understand that when he has played and when he has started, he hasn't been amazing. You know, he had a little run earlier in the season, a couple of months back. And obviously he started against Brighton and did um, sweet FA. But to be honest, I think he needs a run of games um, starting and, you know, maybe completing more of the game rather than just like an hour, maybe completing like 90 minutes um, on, a, on a bit more of a consistent basis before we can kind of start talking about him being completely finished. He, he has got a really good... You know, history has just been basically not playing for two or three years. And that's obviously hampered him massively. Um, I think if you start him for the next five games and he plays 90 minutes in all those five games and he still does nothing, then that would be more of a concern. And then, you know, Spurs would let him go back to Madrid. And I very much doubt if he does play in one of the top five leagues again. But he's not going to want that for himself. Obviously, he's an ambitious guy. And, you know, he, he wants to be in kind of decent form and playing regular football uh, ahead of the Euros if they go ahead and, 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 and for Wales as well. So I can definitely see the kind of motivation being there for him. But, yeah, I think he needs to, to play on a bit more consistent basis before we can start judging him. OK, then, Carl, whether the doctor was on call or not for Tottenham against Liverpool, the Reds have certainly found their feet after a tough start to January. And you'd have to say, on the evidence of that 90 minutes, they made Tottenham look rather ordinary. Yeah, it, they, they did, you know, and, and say the past two performances, it kind of has been that Dr. Tottenham will see you now, isn't it? You know, a team who've been struggling to score goals, a team that haven't won at home this season, and along comes Spurs, you know, the, the gift that keeps giving. Um, 
but yeah, that Liverpool put in a really good performance. They looked strong, you know, helped out by, you know, a team that defensively were kind of committing suicide for, you know, large chunks of the game. You know, if you're going to allow players like Mane just to run off you um, and you, you're going to have problems. Um um, for your Liverpool starting, I think, to kind of find the gears again and kind of start to click. And as we know, you know, if Liverpool start to click, that front three are the, probably, you know, one of the best front threes in the league, if not the best, um, you know, defensively, if you can get. Um, Robertson and Trent Alexander firing again and start getting them to supply those crosses and assists then they become very dangerous and they're starting to look reasonably solid again defensively you know and obviously I'm sure we might get to that at some point you know if they've, they've brought in a couple of guys now that are going to bolster that defence um, that they've had some serious injuries to this season and when you think if they've come through that and they're now starting to find their gears then I, I think we're now possibly looking the that we could start to get back into that two-horse race for a title between them and City. Well, Matthew, that leads me to my next question because Liverpool are back in the groove because they also beat West Ham on Sunday and they're four points behind City having played a game more. They play each other on Sunday at Anfield. There's a lot of extra significance on this one already, but is it lose and the Reds are done for the title? I think it very much is because I think, again, this isn't really a Liverpool thing, but I think Manchester City are just starting to hit their stride. So if you want to sort of catch them out now is now is the time to do it i think liverpool will probably you know be okay for the rest of the season uh going forward because i do like what they managed to do in the transfer window with uh kabak and uh ben davis bring them bring them in i think that's gonna shore up the defense so they'll be fine but it's whether or not they'll be able to catch uh man city at any point i don't see man city really stumbling but if they are going to it's probably going to be this sunday so it is definitely a must Definitely, I, I can't even quantify as a must-not-lose. This is a definitely must-win for Liverpool if they are to stand any small chance of getting anything back in the Premier League. Because I think once that gap increases and Man City have their game in hand, they're not they're not being caught. Yeah, if Liverpool had the game in hand, it would be more of a do-not-lose. But with them having played the game more, they've got to win this one and then you know erode City's gap that way. So I think there's a lot riding on Sunday's clash. But Max, we mentioned very quickly there the reinforcements that Liverpool have brought in. Ben Davis, not that one, and Ozan Kabak. I guess those arrivals will be really welcomed when you consider that John Matip is now out for the season. So it's not quite one step forward, two steps back, but they're kind of only really addressing the problem because of out of necessity. Should they have done this much earlier? Yeah, this is the point. Um, because basically um, last season they had, when they won, they had Van Dijk, Gomez, Matip and Lovren. Um, and, you know, Matip is a bit injury prone and Lovren is a little bit error prone. But that kind of group of four was enough to win them the title. Um, they then sold Lovren. And the, you would have thought that the understanding would be right. Well, one goes out, one comes in. Right. Because, as I said, Matip is injury prone. He hasn't played. Reg He's a really talented player, but he hasn't played regularly across a whole season, basically in his entire Liverpool career. Um, and then Van Dijk, I think, had played every minute of the last two or at least played every game, every, you know, each of the 38 games in the last two Premier League seasons. That is not sustainable, especially when he's playing in all the big European and, and cup games, domestic cup games as well. So really, they should have solved it in the summer because, you know, you people people know that you need to have two players in every position um, if you're going to mount you know, uh, an assault on, on five competitions at the same time. You know, if you're going to be competing on domestic and European fronts and hopefully getting to the to the latter stages of, of all these competitions, you need two players per position. And um, and yeah, they, they were short at the start of the season and they were basically just hoping that Van Dijk played, you know, 99% of their matches again and that it'd be completely fine. That, that's not how it works. Previously... In, in other seasons, they've been lucky that they've managed to kind of skate through. And this season, you know, the, that weakness has been shown up. Um, but having said that, um, even if it is out of necessity, they they have now gone some way to solving that problem. Um, I think the deals they've done are actually really good. I think they've only played two million 
for Ben Davis, who, as well as being a left-sided centre-back, which um, none of the none of the other centre-backs are, I think they're all right-footed, um, he can also cover left-back, and obviously Simicas has barely played this season, so he might become the second-choice left-back behind Robertson when Robertson wants to rest. So they've got him on a two-year contract. He won't be on much money, and he kind of adds a bit of cover. And then they've also got Kabak, who's a very highly rated young player, apparently kind of question marks over his his temperament and his attitude and style like that, but none over his talent. He is only 20, but I think the maximum they're going to pay for him in that deal is one and a half million. And then if the, if he does really well and they decide to buy him, then they pay 18 million at the end. But basically, they've paid three and a half million um, is the maximum they're going to pay for their two centre-backs. And they've really strengthened um, that position now, obviously. And so with basically their only three centre-backs, Matip, Gomez, Van Dijk, all out, all until the rest the end of the season, um, they've made really decisive steps in fixing that and, and for not much money as well. It would be interesting to see whether the two of them are thrown into the lion's den on Sunday. But I guess time will tell. We'll, we'll work that one out next week. Cole, in terms of the transfer window itself, it's almost torturous, really, in terms of pace and actual deals. Now, just think, if you spent a whole month posting transfer rumours on social media, you would have wasted an awful amount of time, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, and, and we know of a lot of accounts that <laughs> yeah. do that, don't we, Dan? You know, every, every single story um, kind of gets retweeted and everything like that during the day. And I... I I don't think many people are surprised, are we, that this was probably the no. most the quiet one of the quietest Januarys um, that we've had for a long while, given you know the situation that's going on going on in the world at the moment. So. I think we all knew that there weren't going to be that much action happening for most teams. Um, you know, everyone's still unsure of where the land is going to lie and the financial in- situation that's happening. You know, how much longer fans won't be back in grounds and loss of revenue. So I don't think anyone was really going to go and lay out massive amounts of money. I think lots of clubs might have been looking at loan loan deals. You know, it, it, let's say let's take Spurs for instance. I thought the only thing that could have possibly materialised um, for us this month might have been, say, Delhi going to PSG and then, say, Christian Eriksen coming on loan, potentially. But as we see, that one hasn't panned out. And I don't think we probably were really actually in for anyone else. Um, so it's not a surprise to me. I think the best thing about this is that we finally gave Sky a kick in, in that sense that they love this Jim White transfer deadline day, yellow stuff, don't they? And for once, it was good to see they were struggling to try and get stuff in and find content for their for their, for their day and their, you know, want to try and build it all up. And so that's the best thing I think that's come out of this. Yeah, it was a tough watch. I mean, I only watched little bits of it because obviously there's nothing to actually digest. But you could see Sky were just really padding and it was, like I say, quite brutal at times. You're just thinking, this ship has sailed, really. All the, the hype and hyperbole behind it, it's done. But Matthew, you've actually done some business, not you personally, of course, but Fulham. And it's Josh Mayer. So he of Sunderland until I die fame. Now, he wouldn't sign a contract and he ended up going to Bordeaux. So you are ending his exile from League R. Is he the saviour in hopes of staying up? Oh, it's so good you use the word saviour because that's exactly the word I used on social media. (laughs) In a very, very sarcastic way because I failed to see how the guy who, I think in 17 games when he was in the championship with Sunderland, scored one goal and that goal happened to be against us. I I get he did okay in League One for a little bit afterwards, but you're relying on him to come in and score the goals to keep us up it was a weird window for Fulham because we we needed attackers it was it was obvious we needed it um Mitrovic has been somewhat in and out of the team um some some through injury some I do believe through personal choice for Scott Parker and the tactics he's using so we needed another forward option and we got we got Maya Magia Magna however you pronounce it I don't intend me you know screaming oh he scored a goal anytime soon so I don't want to have to learn it um we needed attacking options. We got him. But at the same time, we got rid of Abubakar Kamara and uh, Niskin Skabano. So we brought in one attacking option and we lost two of them. So none of it really made any sense. So it's been a frustrating window. I mean, obviously, I hope I improved wrong. But if this is if this guy here is the guy that we're banking on to keep us in the Premier League, I honestly, I just don't see it. Okay, then, Max, I'll just ask you about Liverpool getting into defenders. What did you make of 
Takumi Minamino's short-term switch to Southampton. I thought that was quite an interesting one, actually, and it and it was part of a little like <laughs> like a little transfer chain, like you get when you buy a house, um, because obviously uh, Josh King went to Bournemouth. Uh, Everton, sorry, uh, went from Bournemouth to Everton, and that, that's a really good move, by the way, um, for for him and for Everton, um, considering that they rejected like 15 million, 20 million from United and one of the previous windows. Um, and then Shane Long went from Southampton to Bournemouth to replace King, and then obviously Minamino came from Liverpool. Um, I think I think it's a really good move for them, and you know he has only played a handful of games in in the last season, and you know since he signed, but. He, he's obviously a talented player. He did really well in, in Europe. Um, and, he, you know, he's not in the Liverpool picture at the moment. So I think given that they've had a couple of injuries, um, Southampton, I think he really kind of strengthens their their options. It'll be interesting to see where they actually play him because obviously they play like the 4-2-2-2. Um, he isn't quite a wide midfielder if like like where Armstrong and Redmond play. I don't think he, he's maybe got the defensive capabilities, although we might find out. And he's not really uh, a striker, like an out-and-out um, number nine, number 10 up front, um, which is, you know, where Che Adams and Danny Ings play, and they've been doing pretty well anyway. But he is a talented player, and he does kind of boost their attacking ranks. Um, I thought it was quite interesting that Hasenhutl was saying, oh, well, you know, I'd love to sign 10 players right now, but I just don't have the money because I think they've actually got a pretty good squad. But, I mean, it is obviously thin on the ground. And so bringing Minamino in, um, it makes sense for all parties. You know, hopefully he'll get a bit more first-team action than he would have at Liverpool. And then he'll come back and maybe supplement their squads next season. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if he does well for Southampton, it's that Premier League exposure which he's been lacking. And then Liverpool probably benefit next season. But let's go back to matters on the pitch now, Cole. Manchester City... Again, they're not blowing teams over like they would in the past. You know, the Watford, the eight deals, that kind of stuff. It was only one nil against Sheffield United, but with such a watertight defence, that's all it needs to be. Yeah, that, that, I mean, lately they've really kind of, you know, straightened their defence out, haven't they? You know, the one thing that I think we always felt with City was that you could get at them. They could make some silly defensive mistakes that would give you a chance. Um, and I think the last four or so games have really proved that they've done a lot of work and defensively they've become really sound. Um, and that's bad news for the rest of us, isn't it? Because, you know, if City can, you know, be watertight at the back, you know they've got the ability and capability in that squad to tear you apart at the other end so for me I think the way they've been going lately and the form they're in and the way they look defensively I think it just spells trouble for the rest of us because if this continues then you could see them being very hard to beat for the rest of the season and they could be the team now in my opinion that are about to go and put that run together that it needs to kind of really command this title race and put themselves in the best position um they do look very solid um and and this is without De Bruyne at the moment as well so you know when if they get him back firing if they can get Aguero possibly back and and you know get those injuries resolved and get him backfiring and scoring some goals then I, I think it's looking pretty ominous and I think City you know could be the team now that you're sitting there thinking well this is it these could be you know the title winners and the team that are going to blow everyone else away. So Matthew if they do blow everyone away on a domestic front if you look at their last eight league matches which they've all won they conceded one goal can Pep take this defensive mindset carry it over to the European stage and finally deliver a Champions League? You'd certainly hope so, and I think that is probably in the back of Pep Guardiola's mind is let's get this league wrapped up as soon as possible because uh, Pep Guardiola must know you know, the rhetoric around him and you know, he probably bats off to things like Fraudiola, but he will know all the talk about you know whether or not he's been a success. He hasn't won the Champions League for them. He must know about that. So all of this season and basically the end of this season has to be towards, especially after where it ended last year, has to be towards winning that Champions League. So if he can get the title sewn up as soon as possible, and then, you know, things like, you know, because the 100 points thing, you know, Fabulous team, I don't think they're in a position to do it this year. So that achievement is, you know, out the window. So it's got to be all eyes on the Champions League. So you hope that he, that he gets that message across. Otherwise, as much as, you know, they, you know, they could win, they could win the treble for all, the domestic treble with League Cup, FA Cup and, and League. 
But if he doesn't get that Champions League, there will still be questions about whether or not was this season a quote-unquote success for them. Max, if they do win the Premier League this season, could it be considered a greater achievement by Pep in the sense that he's largely doing it without Sergio Aguero and, at times, Kevin De Bruyne? So are we perhaps seeing a much greater test of his coaching acumen at the moment? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's quite a salient point, I think, because when he won the title two years ago, um, he basically had, <clears throat> you know, they had kind of sporadic injuries here and there, but they basically had all of their great players available for all of the season in a way that kind of Liverpool had most of their players available for most of the season last year. But now he's kind of having to be a bit creative. He's having to come up with defensive solutions, um, you know, when he when he had all those injuries and he's having to come up with solutions up front. Who's going to play there if Jesus is out of form and a little bit injury prone anyway? And Aguero has been out basically the whole season. You know, you're going to play De Bruyne or Foden or Sterling or Torres even as like a false nine. Um, and obviously he's lost David Silva, who's a big miss. De Bruyne has kind of been in and out um, with injury a little bit this season. So I think definitely the fact that he's had to be a bit more versatile and you know, move things around and try different systems and try different players in different positions. I think it could be considered uh, a triumph of um, of his coaching if he wins the title this year. Although I will say um, the the opposition this, this year has been a little bit weaker. Um, you know, Liverpool haven't been quite as strong. And to be honest, they're the... At the moment, they seem to be the, the ones who, who are, you know, really threatening them this season. I'm, I know obviously United are above Liverpool, but United have been a bit more, maybe a bit more inconsistent. I, I think Liverpool probably have more of a chance in a long-term title push. Um, so, you know, if they go on to win the season by 10 points or whatever, then you can say, well, you know, arguably they... The, the opposition were a bit weak as opposed to last season when obviously Liverpool were, were amazing and, and, and managed to beat them in the title. But, but yeah, definitely this season he, he's, he's been forced to think on his feet a bit more. OK, let's go to the South Coast next and a rather contentious Saturday evening at St Mary's. So, Carl, first up, do you think Southampton should have had a penalty when the ball seemingly struck Matty Cash's arm? Well, I think this is the case, isn't it? That earlier in the season, that would have been given, wouldn't it? Yeah. You know, there's no questions. You know, in those first early batches of Premier League games, it would have definitely been given as a penalty. Um, I think it was the law that we all wanted kind of change, wasn't it? Because we were seeing just silly penalties being given. So I think, you know... It, it's a real hard one, isn't it? Because you can feel aggrieved. If you're, South, if you're Southampton, you will feel aggrieved. The arm is up. Um, so the stuff about, oh, it's hit his leg and then gone onto his arm. His arm was in a position there up to make, you know, to allow it to hit it, which I think, you know, I was surprised it wasn't given. But then I think they've changed his handball rule and there was such a noise about giving these sort of penalties earlier in the season. I think they now want to move away from that and try not to give these penalties because of the stick they get that, oh, well, you know, what's a, what's a player meant to do? But in that situation, I think the hand is up. Um, you know, the shot could have been on target. So I think Southampton, if you're a Southampton fan, you will feel slightly aggrieved. But I guess as and I guess as well there'll be other teams that will sit there and say, Well, that's great, we got punished by this earlier in the season and now teams are not getting punished for the same thing. So I don't agree with, you know, if you're gonna change laws after a couple of weeks of the season because these things should have been fought out clearly and thoroughly before you implement them. But I think yeah, Southampton will feel aggrieved, but Villa will take it. Well, absolutely. Let's take Southampton versus Tottenham. The Saints got a penalty after Matt Doty handled in a similar kind of circumstance, and that was a penalty. And obviously Saturday wasn't. So how obviously the rules have changed part way through, which, as you say, Carl, correctly, they shouldn't do because the legitimacy of the competition has been diminished slightly. It's not massively, but it's still not ultimately fair. So they've made a run for their own back there. But Matthew, the obvious talking point will be the disallowed goal of Southampton. Now, obviously the images are going to cause outrage because that's what's widely circulated. Now, you're looking at that and someone's arse played Ings offside. However, there's something that we're not actually looking at or perhaps missed. Would you care to enlighten us? Uh, I will, gladly, because as as I think I've mentioned him on the podcast before, whenever it comes to rules interpretations and VAR interpretations, I always lean on Dale Johnson, who is a fantastic journalist on this angle. And he pointed out, and I think has been lost in the whole fury over it, that the linesman had already given Danny Ings offside in this situation. So the so the goal was already ruled out by the linesman who's 
name escapes me because linesmen's names tend to escape oh, people. It doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, they're usually the only one everyone. Sean Massielis is the only one anyone knows. All the other linesmen just sort of blur into one for some reason. Um, but yeah, they'd already given the things as offside, and then it goes to VAR to double check it because it was borderline, and they confirmed that you know with the rule as it is, he was offside. So. In, you know, in two ways, it was absolutely the correct decision. But I think it does need to be stressed that in the situation, it wasn't VAR disallowing it. It was VAR confirming the disallowing by the linesman. And in which case, can we give... We saw how close it was. Can we give credit to the linesman in this situation? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because, because, in, because in that, you know, the millimetres that everyone was saying, oh, he's offside by, like, the, the black armband, I think, or the commemorative armband, I think. He spotted that offside, so give credit to him. Of course, and I guess Max, this is the problem that if other people aren't in the loop in terms of this information that Dale Johnson has sort of circulated first, it's much easier to spread the message or the, the image of what we've seen and all the outrage. Oh, it's offside! How's it, all this? You know, it should have been a goal, bloody blah, blah. Outrage. That's you know, if, if people aren't prepared or that, if that message isn't getting portrayed easier. Then we're never really going to succeed with VAR, are we? Because it's always going to be the outrage which travels further. Yeah, and and what what I think is quite quite interesting is that before VAR there was this outrage over refereeing decisions, and doubtless if we got rid of VAR, which I don't think will happen, and I don't think we should get rid of it, but if we did get rid of it, that outrage would still be there because people are annoyed that their teams lost, or because they had they thought that their team had scored and eventually it got disallowed, and you know basically. Uh, if, if a side wins and a side loses, there are going to be 20,000 people online who aren't happy. And whether the target of that anger is the referee or VAR or the linesman or whatever, that anger is still going to be there. And, you know, that isn't going to dissipate, even if it turns out that according to the rules, it was the right thing, because the, the offside was the right decision. And as as has been pointed out very um yeah, succinctly, it it wasn't. It was never a goal. It was never a goal, and then expunged. It just, you know, the the goal never existed because it was already um, disallowed by the linesman. And in a world without VAR, the goal wouldn't have been given because the linesman gave it offside. Um, but yeah, I would I'd recommend that that anyone who who's basically has a passing interest in football, I'd recommend that they um, that they check out Dale Johnson because he he is really the the kind of rules guru. And a couple of times I've been wrong about things. And I've, I've thought, oh, you know, I'm not sure about that. And then I've gone to check uh, what, what he's had to say. And, you know, he's he's told us the wording of the rules and why this was given and why this wasn't given. And he, he, he really does make a lot of sense. And, and, you know, I think basically people have a position on VAR, um, whether that's positive or negative. And generally, you know, all humans are kind of subject to confirmation bias. So if they if they already think that VAR isn't a good thing, they'll see something like the, the Ings offside and, you know, they'll they'll just kind of have a rant on social media. Oh, it's a joke. You know, that would never have been offside back in the day, whatever, whatever. Um, and, you know, th there are things that we can fix about VAR and things we can amend about VAR. But basically, I don't think that anger is going <laughs> to is, is going to go anywhere, whether VAR is there or not. And by the way, um, on the offside, I thought it was quite funny that um, the Villa manager, Dean Smith, said it's lucky that John McGinn, uh, wasn't there poking his bum up because Ings would have been three yards onside. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great point, actually. I guess as football fans, we all need to educate ourselves, but also the message of these decisions and the real intricacies, such as the flag going up first, they probably need to be told quicker and simpler also, and it stops the, the faux outrage or the mass outrage that then follows. But Cole, you could argue the flag went up early or not, but it certainly went up early at the Hawthorns days before because Sean Massey was a bit too keen in putting her flag up when Man City faced West Brom. So after that, there was a lack of pressing from West Brom. Obviously, the old adage, which you should always adhere to, is always pay to the whistle, something that West Brom didn't do. So from that point, City scored, as they had every right to do so. But is there some confusion here between the signalling of the flag and the trust in VAR? Yeah, I think, you know, it's always going to be that way, you know, isn't it? If, if an official doesn't put their flag up, you know, or the, the official puts a flag up and players stop, um, I think that's always going to muddy the water, isn't it? So, as you say, I think, you know, the simple thing for players now is just play to you. get Play, play as you say, that old adage, play to the whistle um, because, you know, the linesman may not put his flag up. So if you just stop thinking, yeah, he was offside, then you, you're going to end up looking particularly silly. So, you know, any good, 
team I'm assuming now will just say, listen, you don't stop playing until that whistle has gone because we don't know what's going on. You know, you, I mean, we do see some ridiculous ones, don't we, where you can clearly see a guy is offside. He picks the ball up, runs and has a shot, and then the official puts his flag up. And it, and it does frustrate you because you think, oh, wow, you know, why did that take so long? But these are the rules that have been implemented. So the simple thing for teams now is, you know, you just got to, as we said, play to the whistle, just keep going and just think, right, we don't stop until the ball's dead. And that way, you know, you'd like to think you're not going to get caught out where, you know, you just suddenly stand there and think you're waiting for a flag that's never going to come. Um, so I, I'd, I'd be very surprised if, you know, managers and coaches up and down the country are not talking to their teams now and telling them, listen, you know, you, you don't just stop, you carry on and play. Matthew, do you think we'll soon be at a point where assistant referees are taken out of the offside equation and all they are then doing is goal kicks, corners, an extra set of eyes. Because there's seemingly some form of debate that they're kind of getting in the way of technology. That like we don't need them and VAR. It's kind of like two people doing one job. Is that something that's going to ever change? That's, that's a good question because I know there has been some debate about, and I know it was taught, you know, with VAR and goal line technology, you know, is there some argument to be made for getting rid of, of linesmen? Um, which you, you can kind of see the case, you know, because if, you know, we've got the robots and the AI um, controlling those things, then, yeah, you can absolutely. But you will still need them for goal kicks and corners and throw-ins and making sure, you know, who the ball came off last sort of thing. But then, even then, even after I saw I had that discussion previously, isn't that what the, you can use that for, you can use the VAR for that as well. Because if the referee, because the referee can give a decision, you know, who, you know who the ball came off uh, last when two players go up to head the ball, and if and if he say, if he gives it one way, then the VAR can quickly say, "Hang on, we just want to check that because it's marginal." Um, no, actually, you got that wrong. It came off the other player, so give a goal kick rather than a corner. So I think there is some debate. I don't I don't think it ever will because there will be some points where you do need where you do need an actual physical person there. But actually, I do agree that there will be more and more things that the linesmen are going to have their responsibilities taken away from them at some point. Yeah, I'd agree. I think that at some point down the line, I think they'll be taken away from the offside element and there'll be full trust in technology. Because at the moment, it's kind of, they're stepping on each other's toes and this is where you get the Sean Massey type of confusion and everything else that we've seen. You still need them though, because that would be too much responsibility for a ref. Like, you can't see every ball that goes out, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Do you know what I mean? There has to be some sharing of the workload, but I just feel that if we are going to use VAR and really put all our eggs into this basket, then you don't really need to have linesmen or whatever they're called, assistant referees, putting their flags up as well. But Max, in terms of VAR, we didn't see it in action on Thursday night as uh, Liverpool beat Tottenham. Well, we did, but we didn't see it for one moment. That was when Alisson potentially handled the ball outside the box. The question is, though, did he? Yes, yeah, it's it's, a, it's it's tricky, but you, you would have liked um, you basically would have liked the the technology to have a bit more of a look at it, um, and I think what frustrates a lot of fans is that sometimes you know you can look at offsides or handball decisions over and over and over and over and over in absolute minute detail and 28 slow motion replays and then go over to the side of the pitch and see it four times more and then you know occasionally you, you have something where the technology doesn't even really look at it or um uh, the commentator says right yeah um var's looked at that and it's decided there wasn't anything in it and about three seconds have passed and you're thinking well you know we do want VAR to speed up a bit, but we would like adequate consideration to be to be given to, to events like that. You know, that's what VAR is for, ultimately. And if 30 seconds more um, elapse, but we've got the right decision, I think most fans don't mind hanging on for that extra 30 seconds. So it would have been it would have been nice to to uh, for them to have looked at it a bit closer. Carl, let's look to the bottom of the table now. And you'd have to say that Brighton are the big winners of the weekend. With them being seven points clear of Fulham, albeit with the Cottagers having a game in hand at the moment, do you think the relegation battle is already run? Um, well, like as you say, I think that win really gives a nice bit of breathing space, doesn't it? Um, whether, would I say it's run? Probably not, given the way that this season has gone, because, you know, like I say, team, no team is really finding a real element of consistency. Um, so you still probably think there's some twists and turns, but I think, you know, I think we have to say Sheffield United are probably gone. Um, that's too late. 
I do think, I, unfortunately, and, you know, I feel sorry for Matthew here, but I don't think the other two teams there, you know, West Brom and Fulham, are going to have enough possibly to get themselves out. Um, and that win obviously hasn't helped because it has created, you know, opened up a bit of a gap. And Brighton play some good football and you can see them picking up more points. So I do think it's a tough road ahead for those three teams that are in that bottom three. But I actually wouldn't say it's over yet. I, I wouldn't be surprised if we get some twists, you know, and, and there's still a bit of a fight on. But I can only see that happening for two of those teams because, as I say, I think, unfortunately, for Sheffield United, it, it's too little too late. OK, then, Matthew, obviously, we want your input on this topic. Scott Parker seems to be trying to draw his way out of the bottom three. It's not quite working. Obviously, it's good to be picking up points, but you do feel that a giant leap's going to have to happen at some point. Question is when? Um, it's not going to. I think oh, the, wow. the whole draw, the whole draw thing, and the, the, you could see the style of play. You could see what he was trying to do because we switched to five at the back to basically to nullify the attacks of. Oh, we, we have went on a bit of a run. It was Leicester, Man City, Liverpool, and Everton. I think in in the space of four games, and we did good enough to sort of keep the attacks at bay. I think the loss to Man City was. 2-0, one of which was a penalty, and we drew with Liverpool. So the arguments were there to keep that. But when we're going into games where, you know, we're in with a bit more of a chance against the likes of uh, Sheffield United or Brighton or West Brom, we didn't we didn't have that plan B to go to, to you know, to make us more attacking. I think that's really what has cost us. And you know, I you know, we've sort of lot we lost the opportunity because these two these past two games against Brighton and West Brom really were must-win games because of the situations. And to only come away with two points from them is a bit of a kick in the teeth. Even, you know, you could have made the argument two points, you know, especially the draw at Brighton, because it keeps them there rather than lets them go further than us. But then they go and beat Spurs and you just think, oh, what the hell, you know, what's the point and all that? Um, so, yeah, I do kind of agree with Carso. I won't really take an issue with it because, you know, I've been acceptance of relegation since the moment we lifted the playoff trophy at Wembley. So if we go down, we go down. I just wish we would have been, you know, given given more of an effort and showed more of a fight and had given ourselves more of a chance across these couple of games as to be in a little bit better position towards the end of the season. Because I honestly can see us being gone with about maybe five, six games to go once again. Well, if you're looking at the points tally thus far, I guess the magic 40-point marker won't be needed it'll be much lower but I guess Matthew it's all about you know how long can you stay in this contest and I just feel that the gap being as it is and the, the lack of wins that might be your downfall but Max as for West Brom they seem to be blowing either incredibly cold and sort of shipping fours and fives or just about warm you know like a draw against Fulham yes there was the win against Wolves but not really sort of you know two extremes it's just kind of bad and all right so with that lack of any consistency and their propensity to ship lots of goals, is that ultimately going to be their undoing? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Whereas at, at least kind of Fulham, who, who I think have got a shot of staying up, by the way, um, they seem to have kind of carved out some kind of consistency in that their defence is pretty good and their attack is a bit less good. Um, but, you know, they've kind of got a stable formation and way of playing. I understand, you know, you would have liked to have seen a bit more of an attacking intent and maybe system against the, the likes of, uh, of West Brom and Brighton. But, you know, they've got a kind of a defined way of playing that we know has, you know, been semi-successful in the league. Whereas West Brom, they're just chopping and changing between three at the back and four at the back and five at the back and sometimes one striker and sometimes three strikers. And, yeah, like you say, they've had a couple of decent results. You know, they beat Wolves, although Wolves have been on a really bad run. And they, uh, you know, they, they drew with City and I think drew with Liverpool or beat Liverpool. Um, forgive my bad memory. Um, but... It, yeah, they're, they're just a bit more up and down, and you don't really know what what their system is or what their best player, you know, what what their best who their best players are. And you get the sense that even Sam Allardyce, after you know a, a while in the job, is still kind of working out what his best team is and what his best system is. Now um, the January transfer window is over. They've brought in the players that they wanted to brought uh, to bring in. Maitland Niles is a really good signing. The other ones from abroad, um, Yokuslu and, and um, uh, Dianya up front, we're going to have to see how they kind of adapt to the Premier League. But um, definitely Maitland-Niles and Snodgrass have kind of got decent uh, Premier League pedigree. So basically now that he's got the window out of the way and he's brought in the players he wanted to bring in, 
you know, this is when he's going to have to nail down his best team, his best system, his best formation, you know, the best way of playing. And then maybe we might manage to see some consistency. Um, whereas, you know, Scott Parker, I feel, has worked this out much earlier in this season. Carl, what can be said of Wolves? Because they've not won any of their last eight. Now, they're nine points clear of the drop, so I don't think relegation is quite the conversation. But will the owners have to consider that the Nuno era is slightly running out of steam? Yeah, really disappointing season so far for Wolves, isn't it? And like I say, they just can't seem to... I think, you know, it's lack of goals right now and lack of a main focal point, I think. And we spoke about it, you know, a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? That, you know, the, the injury to Jimenez has really kind of hurt them. Also losing Jota at the start of the season to Liverpool. I think they were two big goal threats that have gone for Wolves. We've seen, as we, Triore hasn't kind of hit the ground running and, and had the same impact as he was having last season um you know you, you don't really get goals from Matinho or Neves um so I think that that's been their real problem they've struggled with this season you know once that injury happened the goals have dried up the confidence has gone um and I'm very surprised that they didn't try to go out and do some business and bring in a real kind of experienced striker that, that could have filled that gap for them this season. As you say, I, I think they'll continue in this vein for the rest of the season now where, you know, they might put on a couple of good games, but then they'll have a couple of bad games. They'll probably end up mid-table. Um, but I think if you're the owners there... I think they've got lofty ambitions, the Wolves owners, and I think they will be looking now as a seriously saying, right, what is going wrong here? Because what we don't want to suddenly do is let the momentum that the club has built up over the last couple of seasons slip and then possibly, you know, that they were going to be looking to try and build, you know, push for European places and be able to bring players in that would bring that. If they suddenly start slipping down, then the attraction goes. And I think that will be the thing that will have that board and, and those owners sitting there thinking, right, do we need to make some action? Is there some steps we need to take here? Um, and I think, you know, if the form was to continue the way it's going right now, then you wouldn't be surprised if, if they're seriously considering making a change at some point. So, Matthew, the kazoo. It didn't work last week as Everton drew a blank at home to Newcastle. Musical instruments, sorry, musical instruments aside, that was a rather poor performance from the Toffees, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, yeah, absolutely. But I do want to give some level of credit to Newcastle United oh, yeah, through, course, all, yeah. through, through all of this because... I don't want to put the whole thing like a new manager bounce. I don't want to put the whole thing on Graham Jones, but there does seem to be just a little bit more, maybe, maybe Steve Bruce knowing that, you know, this could be his job on the line. Cause I know there has been a lot of talk sort of in the media and sort of in the background that this whole move was basically done to basically usher in the new era and Steve Bruce to move to director of football, I think was one of the, so maybe that was just a little bit of a boost on there, but back, back to the Everton point, a bit of a disappointing performance, but on the whole, it's, that's what we've sort of expected from Everton this season. They've always just been there, but then they've always just had that one result that makes you think, oh no, they're not quite there yet. And this was just another example of it. You know, Ancelotti has taken them, has taken them forward this year, but they do still look like they're, you know, one key thing or one, season away of getting everything together before they can really take that step up. It's been a good season for them, but it might just be one season too early for them to make that big jump. Yeah, right now, I'm not putting Everton in the European conversation. I just don't think they get there. But Max, in terms of Newcastle and everyone connected with the club will be thinking, where on earth did that performance come from? So the big question is, can they play like that with more regularity? Well, I'm hoping uh, not uh, later today when they when they play Palace. But oh, yeah, very nice. Yeah, um, the their play and it wasn't just the fact that they had kind of been um performing badly because you know on at least five or six or ten occasions across the season you know a team won't play to their full potential and they'll be slightly off it you know that's just part and parcel of of playing loads of games across a across a season but i think what has particularly annoyed uh, Newcastle fans um not not that i can speak for them but it is the fact that there seems to be so little kind of fight and desire and drive and attacking intent. You know, I think they just, in a lot of games, they feel like they're just kind of meandering, um, hoping for a nil-nil draw um, and, you know, not really showing any attacking intent or any vigour 
or you know any life to their performances i'm sounding like i'm really being really really critical <laughs> but you know this is kind of what what, what i've been uh, reading and and seeing from from newcastle fans and i think that is um what is the frustration it's not the fact they've been playing badly because you know every now and then every team plays badly it's just the fact that they they seem to be so lifeless when they play and uh, you know that was back against Everton, and even if they had ended up losing to a you know a dodgy deflection or, or something against Everton, I feel like the fan base would have been a bit more satisfied that there seemed to have been a bit of you know vigor about them. As it turns out, they played really well, and they could have even had a couple more goals. You know, Pickford made a really good save from Wilson. Wilson could have scored another, and you know that that is the kind of Newcastle team that their fans want to see. It was a bit more ambitious, and you know they were really showing their kind of nasty side but in a good way as in you know really um not stepping out of tackles and, and showing that they can be you know abrasive and and tough to play against whereas you know too often they've been a bit of a soft touch so um yeah the newcastle fans will be hoping that graham jones's arrival can be a bit of a, a bit of a boost for them and definitely bruce has spoken you know you, you don't want to put too much emphasis on just a coach coming in but bruce has spoken about the kind of positive impact he had and you know bringing some fresh ideas and a, a new face around the place and yeah they'll, they'll be hoping that that kind of momentum can continue so Cole, talking of a new face the thomas tuchel era is underway at chelsea and although they tried to pass wolves to death they couldn't find a breakthrough however they found more cutting edge against burnley when it mattered on sunday and you now think that that's the template going forward. Yeah, you'd think so, wouldn't you? I mean, after Hudson Odoi was was really good in that game against Burnley. You know, he, he got a lot of the ball, um, and he was very direct and straight into the box. Um, and and you get the impression that you know the guy likes him and he's going to start getting more football because there was a slight worry about where he was going. Um, you know, broke onto the scene, but then kind of struggled with some injuries and that. But he looked really good. Chelsea created lots of chances. Um, Obviously, you know, I think Burnley would like to have given them a tougher game, but in Burnley have had quite a run of tough games there. It's a good start for them so far, you know, and there's some promising signs. But, hey, look, you know, that that's a decent squad, that Chelsea squad, and they would expect to beat Burnley at home um, no matter who was in charge. So I think it would be interesting to see how we go forward, if he can start getting more out of the likes of Werner and players like that. But a decent start. Um, you know, you'd, you'd think that they'll fancy their chances on Thursday coming up against us. Um, you know, even though that is a tough fixture, but I still think they'll go into that very confident. And again, I think that could be a big win if they get a win in that game. Because I think, you know, again, that, that could be a real momentum shifter for them and, and some more confidence. So it will be interesting to see. I'm sure in 18 months' time, we'll be sitting here talking about a new Chelsea manager in if things haven't worked out and gone the right way. But it's not it's not a bad start. It's quite positive, And they'll look to continue that. So, Matthew, staying in London, Arsenal are now unbeaten in seven in the league. And you'd have to say with five clean sheets during that run, going back to defensive basics, it's certainly starting to work for Mikel Arteta. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, not, that I want to, not that I want to give praise to Arsenal and Mikel Arteta, given to two of my co-hosts are on the thing, but it does look as if the... I don't know quite know what the opposite of a honeymoon period is, but whatever whatever that bad spell was that Mikel Arteta was going through a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago, looks to have finally been over. He, the teething problems, let's put it that way. The teething problems that he had has finally started to work themselves out. Uh, defensive issues have been have absolutely been sorted out, and all credit to him. But I think on top of that, the the attacking young talent that they're getting through the Hale End boys, I think they're known as, which is, I think, the Arsenal Academy. I, I don't know, but I think it is, has started to flourish well. So now things are slight, starting to get back together for Mikel Arteta because we had that period sort of around this time last year when they then went on and uh, did well in the, in the uh, FA Cup and finished off winning the league. Now that we're starting, we're starting to get back to that as well for Mikel Arteta. So, in a sense, good for him. Max will stay in the capital still as your beloved Crystal Palace continued Wolves' misery. So, not a barnstormer as a whole, but a barnstorming goal from Eze. One that keeps you guys in relative mid-table, you'd have to say. Yeah, I feel like that was quite an important game. Not that I think we were likely to get dragged into the relegation battle had we lost, but Wolves and Palace were on the same points. And it's it's a bit of a, a kind of statement win. Um, and in the similar way that, that how, how we fare against Newcastle will kind of define where we are in the season and, and as a club, because, you know, 
us beating Wolves, it now kind of shows that we're looking upwards. And if we beat Newcastle, who are um, two places below us in, in 15th, it kind of shows that we're looking to be a top half team and kind of showing the form of a top half team and and we can start looking upwards rather than downwards. And so, yeah, it was, it was an important win. And look, don't get me wrong, um, we played Wolves at a good time. They were in pretty poor form. Um, William Jose did all right, had a kind of couple of chances, but it was the second longest um, this season that the that a team had to wait for a shot attempt you know it was the 56th minute um, and only Burnley beat that like the next day um, when they waited 94 minutes for a shot uh, attempt so th- they were pretty blunt in attack and then when you also consider that they're conceding lots more goals as well um, yeah it's, it's a bit worrying for them but yeah as I say he's, he's just got that that kind of star quality I don't want to overhype him but um, yeah it was a really good moment from him a match-winning moment and yeah, he he um, he's he's obviously a class player, and I'm I'm delighted we've got him. And hopefully we can beat Newcastle tonight, and then as I say, start um, looking a bit further up the table. You know, if we beat um, Newcastle tonight, we'll be level on points with Southampton and Leeds, and two points off Arsenal, who've done all right this season. Whereas if we lose, you know, then we're we're much closer to the likes of Burnley and Brighton, who are just outside the relegation zone. So yes, yeah, it's, it's quite an important game coming up. Right, it's the quick fire round. We've got about four minutes to go. So, Cole, Leicester, quite simply, missing Jamie Vardy at the moment, aren't they? Yeah, that, that's, that's a big blow for them, isn't it? You know, I think it's something that Leicester haven't had in those last few seasons. You know, someone that can step in and fill that void. Um and again, they did look like they missed him at the weekend. And it's something that, unfortunately, if they've got aspirations to try and be in the top four or push for the title, I think it's the one thing that could possibly hold them back and that they will need to look to rectify at some point. But they'll be disappointed with that result because I think they really will have looked to carry the momentum on and beat Leeds and then obviously keep that push going. But as you say, it did look like without that spearhead up top, they looked a little toothless. And Matthew, in the past week, it looks like Manchester United are simply missing the plot. Yeah, absolutely. As as we've said, this is the time. This is the time of the season where everything starts to go wrong in the you know the Ole Gunnar Solskjaer cycle, as it were. So we shouldn't really be totally totally be surprised by this. But whether or not they'll be able to pick things up, we'll just have to wait, wait, wait and see. They'll get it back together. We just know they will. Yeah, the blip was always coming, wasn't it? So as you say, no real surprise, but. Max, West Ham, again, no real surprise that perhaps the run they were on ended against Liverpool, but can the 28-year-old youngster Jesse Lingard do anything for them going forward? Yeah, he is, he is like, the, he's like the oldest um, prospect, <laughs> isn't he, in, in world football? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a decent signing. Um, that The kind of backup attacking midfielders haven't done so well this season. So, you know, regularly they played Bowen, on the right and four nails left uh, and Ben Rama in the centre or Ben Rama left and four nails centre. And that's a pretty good, you know, trio of attacking midfielders to have behind Antonio. But then Yarmolenko has been kind of in and out. He's played a bit more recently, but hasn't done loads. Um, you know, Lanzini hasn't, um, luckily, because he he always scores goals against Palace. I think he scored like five goals against Palace, something ridiculous in like the last four games he's played against us. But um, he hasn't he hasn't played much this season. And I think they needed, you know, if they are going to have a bit more ambition to stay in the European place, and I don't think they are, but if they want to finish, you know, maybe sixth, seventh, eighth rather than mid-table, you know, I feel like they, they did need a bit of strengthening in those attacking areas. And they haven't got any... Uh, backup strikers to, to Antonio now that um, Allaire has left. And so, you know, you wouldn't want Lingard starting up front as a number nine every single week um, in a Premier League team. But he does offer a bit of versatility. You know, he can play a bit deeper as a number six or number eight. He could play in any of the three uh, attacking midfield roles, um, kind of out wide, number 10. And he could fill in as a striker if needed. Obviously, he's got a point to prove. His United career, I feel like, is over unless he does amazingly in this West Ham um, stint. But yeah, he, he's got the option to to play himself back into Man United and, you know, dare I say, England's plans if he does really well. Because there's obviously a player in there somewhere. He's just massively short of form and, and confidence. Um, so I, I, think it's, I think it's a good move for them. You know, he's not going to be... Um, cheap. I don't think it's a very expensive loan fee, but he's obviously going to have pretty sizable wages. But I think it's um, it's the kind of gamble that could pay off for West Ham potentially. Alternatively, he could just be like another Nasri and play like two games and um, and go back in disgrace and get released by United in the summer. But <laughs> we'll have to see. 
Yeah, it's crazy how he was a part of the 2018 World Cup team, really, for England. And look where he is now. So I guess if there's ever a, a period to get back on your feet, it might be West Ham, but it might be a complete bust. Time will tell. And we've run out of time. So we've mopped up the last seven days of Premier League action. And now I need to thank my pod squad members for their time this afternoon. So Max, a sterling performance. And thanks for joining me once again. Yeah, thanks very much. See you next week. No problem. Matthew, same to you, my friend. A pleasure as always. Take words out of my mouth. Pleasure as always. Lovely stuff. And Carl, the captain's armband is going nowhere. I hope you'll be joining me next Tuesday. Yeah, we'll do, Dan. Really enjoyed that one. Top man. Fantastic. Cheers, guys. And also to the listeners out there. And with that said, it just leaves me to say that my name's Dan Tracy. This is The Real Football Cast. And until next time, goodbye. Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.